All right. Welcome, everybody, to episode 19 of Sports Cards Live. Almost at 20, and what a run it has been so far. So thanks, everybody, who's been watching. Thanks to all my guests along the way so far uh, and all the great feedback. I really appreciate it all. And thanks, everybody, who subscribed to the YouTube channel as well. Really do appreciate that. I uh, want to start by just going back in time and thanking the last couple of guests. So a, a week ago today, we had uh, Tim and Sean. We spoke about investing uh, as a collector, and we spoke about estate planning, and we spoke about security for your collection and all sorts of stuff that's really important. So take a look. We even touched on income tax a little bit. So take a look at that episode. It lives on the YouTube channel. So that one's still there. And then I really want to give a big thanks to Ken Reed, the, the co-anchor for Sportsnet here in Canada. Was an awesome guest with me last Wednesday. We had a, an amazing hour and a half conversation. It was a ton of fun. Yeah, a lot of passion in that in that show. So be sure to go back and watch that. Also living on the YouTube channel, Sports Cards Live. Just go search that on YouTube and subscribe if you haven't yet. Uh, coming up on Wednesday is going to be the Expo Preview Show. My guest will be Amit Acharya, also known as Titan Hockey Stick on Instagram and 99 Goals elsewhere. Be sure to check that out. We're going to be talking about what we're expecting for the virtual expo, uh, how we are going to be approaching it, and perhaps even showing some of the cards that we will be having available for that show. So that should be awesome. And then next Saturday, planning just to do an expo recap because the virtual expo is going to be running on Friday and Saturday next week. I assume I'm going to be quite tired after all that. So I'm not sure I'll have a full show Saturday night, but hopefully we'll chat about something uh, virtual expo related. Couple more things before we bring out tonight's guest. Um, I want to mention the Center Ice Card Cast. I was uh, their guest on episode three. We recorded that last night and uh, had a great time talking to those guys. So be sure to check that out. Center Ice Card Cast. They're on all the all the uh, all the podcast platforms, YouTube as well. And then uh, there's another cool thing going on right now in the hobby online, especially if you're on Instagram. You might have noticed that. Uh, uh, the House of Jordan's crew, as well as Cardboard Chronicles, these guys are putting out some new service called Card Ladder. Seems to be a portfolio tracker, a price guide, and all sorts. It looks really cool. So I'm not exactly sure what it is yet. I'm hoping to get a look. And uh, but anyway, you should check that out if you haven't heard of it yet. When you're on Instagram, you might see some story uh, posts called Card Ladder. Anyway, check it out. I don't really know what it is yet, but I have uh, some high hopes for it. All right, tonight's guest is a good friend of mine. His name is Jeff Wolf. He's the president of Iconic Auctions. And Iconic Auctions has been around for quite a few years. He'll get into some details uh, for us. So let's bring him out. Jeff Wolf, welcome to the 19th episode of Sports Cards Live. How are you doing tonight, my friend? Doing great. I'm here talking to you, my brother. So how, how much better can it get? It can't get much better than that, Jeff. Can't get much yeah. better. So let's let's start off, Jeff. Um, I'm actually we're going to start off. I want to just explain to some to the viewers here, kind of what our connection is, because um, you know, sure. you're not just somebody that I I called and said, hey, I saw that your company sold this uh, Michael Jordan love letter, the twenty page love letter, uh, just about two weeks ago for twenty five thousand yeah. um, dollars. Well, I saw that and I was super pumped for you. Um, I called you because you're actually a friend of mine. We've known each other going back. Uh, it's about 12 years now. You actually work pretty closely with my brother. You're out of Arizona. You work yep. with my brother and I met you through him several years ago. And, um, and it's funny because when I had Brian Gray on the show, uh, about a month and a half ago or so, we were chatting about playing poker, uh, 
during the Chicago National. And come to think of it, I think you were at that poker table too with us. Yeah. 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 yeah that, that was way, way back. That, that was like our first or second show we were at together. Yeah, that's right. I think I met you first at the 08 National. I met you, uh, you were hanging out with my brother at the hotel, my brother Kyle. And um, yeah. yeah, and uh, met you there. And then we've spent pretty much every National together since then. When I go to the National, I'm I headquarter at your booth. You have uh, the iconic auction set up um, in the uh, corporate section, and it, yeah. I make it my I make it my home base, which I thank you very much for, as always. And uh, so, so we've got we've got some history. We we've had several dinners together. Uh, you, me, uh, Kyle, my brother, your your colleague, and and my and our father actually, who's taken quite That's the right. liking to you as well. Yeah, the Harva uh, has is a big fan of yours. So anyway, That's I just right. want to kind of set the the you know, the context that we actually are friends and, um, and you just happen to own iconic auctions, which, uh, as far as I know, you know, you've got, you've got kind of the, the top tier of auction houses being the, 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 um, golden, uh, memory lane, um, uh, what are a couple of the other ones? And then, and then there's heritage, heritage, of course. Yeah. And then you're kind of like a mid to hot, mid to top tier sort of, uh, auction company, but, before we get into a lot about your company, let's talk about this love letter, this Michael Jordan love letter, 20 page letter that you guys just sold for $25,000. And what's interesting to me is where did this thing come from? How did you guys get your hands on it? And what was, what's the provenance of it? Where was it between before, you know, between Michael Jordan giving it to this, this, this woman uh, until you have it and you listed it for sale in your auction? Where did this thing come from? So I, I kind of know the backstory more than just what where it came from for me, but where it came from for me was from a consigner. And uh, basically, he's a consigner of ours who I've known for a while, and he called me out of the blue and said, hey, I have this item, a, a Jordan item that I've had for a while, and I've just been waiting for the right time to move it, and I feel like it might be the right time. It's a Michael Jordan handwritten letter, and I think it has some good content, so he he uh, I was like, okay, yeah, Michael Jordan's hot right now. Send me uh, over some details. So he emails me the transcript of it. And I start reading through it. And I'm like, whoa, this is not just a handwritten letter. It's pretty significant. And he kind of, to his credit, you know, usually people, when they own something, they overhype it just because it's theirs. You know, it's just human nature, I guess. But he was very modest in his uh, description of it. And when I saw it, I was like, whoa, this is substantial. But the, uh, the ironic thing about it was is that I actually had worked with somebody uh, 16 years prior that had shown me a, a couple letters they had gotten of Jordan's in their collection. And this was one of those letters and I had just kind of scanned through it because we were dealing with a bunch of other stuff. And at that time, Jordan was, you know, he was Michael Jordan still, but he wasn't nearly what Michael Jordan is now. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Michael Jordan, hand, some handwritten letters from this girl he dated. That's nice. You know, we were moving on. We were dealing with like big uh, Jimi Hendrix stuff and like some bit really high end music stuff. And he just happened to have that. So it was kind of like weird to see it come full circle now that Jordan is, you know, the center of the universe practically. And, um, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that were just the hobby kind of revolves around. And, you know, something that wasn't relevant 10, 15 years ago all of a sudden becomes the biggest thing in the in the industry, you know, 15 years later so. Yeah. So was it was it coincidence then that this thing came to the came to the block uh, shortly after the last dance finished uh, its run? Well, yeah. I mean, it was he reached out to me right at the beginning when last dance 
you know, came, I think the first, what, they did two episodes at a time. So it was yeah. episode one and two came about. And he called me either right before that came on, like literally like the the week before, the week after, and was like, hey, I, you know, I've been watching the market and I'm seeing this show that's coming up or it's going to be on. And I think it might be a good time to move this Jordan letter. And I want to know what your thoughts are on it. And that's, that's where it all started. So, and, you know, we luckily we work on pretty short lead times with Iconic since we do auctions every month. So I was like, well, hey, we can certainly get this thing into our May auction. And uh, I think we, the auction technically ended, what was it, the week after the final episode or something like that. So, okay. But, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. So let me ask you this. Um, it sold for $25,076. I saw it on, on the iconic website. It's really neat that you can yeah. actually read this whole 20 page love letter. And he actually gets pretty personal about what he's going through, uh, in his life. And it's not just, Oh, I love you. I miss you. It's, he gets personal about what he's going through. And I found that really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Anything, yeah. anything, did anything in the letter that he said really stick out at you as maybe, something that would add more value to it or be more attractive to collectors other than just some typical roses or red violets or blue kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I had uh January, February, we had a poem, a love poem he wrote in middle school, I think to some gal Jordan, you know, he was very, I, I guess uh, he loved to pick up the pen when he had a passion about a woman or something, you know, whatever you want to call it. So uh, we had a love letter or love poem that he wrote, but it wasn't necessarily, it was just literally, I, it was, uh, I think it was uh, uh, just him basically stealing the lyrics from the song, Only You. I, I forget who wrote it, but basically he just kind of morphed the lyrics into his okay. own version of it. Um, but uh, with this letter in particular, um, he said a few things in there that were really cool because at this time when he wrote the letter, it was 89. Okay, it was uh, it was uh, summer of '89. It was right before the Bulls '90 '91 season when they really took off. He was the biggest star at that point. He was becoming the biggest athlete in the world. You know, Jordan, the Jordan hype at that time was starting to really take off. And he talked about how how he had the pressures of uh, of fame and how he had a basically. So he was writing to a gal who he had dated before his soon-to-be wife, Juanita, got married. And he had to cut it off with her rather abruptly because Juanita got pregnant and they were engaged to be married. And, you know, he was moving forward with his life. And so he's kind of airing out to this gal his pressures in life. And he talks about how, hey, I'm not Michael Jordan, the guy who works nine. He says this, so I'm, I'm paraphrasing it slightly, but he says, I'm not Michael Jordan who works nine to five or has a regular job. I'm Michael Jordan, who's a role model to millions of people, including families and kids around the world. And so I have to carry myself in a certain way, he says in so many words. So right then and there, you can see, you know, he was recognizing he was becoming bigger than just a person. And, um, you know, one of the things that most people will acknowledge is the Jor Jordan's uh, reputation and his brand is very well protected and guarded. And this kind of gives you an idea into, you know, I, it all starts from the top. He recognized it. And so he was basically explaining, hey, I've got to carry myself a certain way and I've got to I've got to end this with you. Right. So it's it's interesting to see that insight because you don't 
Jordan, he's getting more ver verbal over time, but especially when he was a player, he was very, he kept his cards, you know, close to the chest. He didn't talk much about personal issues and, or anything like that. So it's, it's cool to see something like that in the midst of him becoming the megastar. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it's a real insight into who he is as a human or who he was at that time anyway. And a very rare glimpse into that. Really, really cool. So the final hammer price, $25,076, is that kind of where you expected it to be when you were getting yeah. ready and you're, you know, you're I, at I, I was talking to a few people. It's one of those things I really didn't know where it would end up. Um, just because the, the Jordan market has moved so fast and unlike cards where, you know, you can see a bunch of them sell, uh, you know, on eBay and kind of get an idea like, oh, this thing's trending upward and we're going to be right around this area. Um, uh, memorabilia, every piece is unique and one off. And, you know, there might have been a letter that sold on Jordan a week prior that would give no indication of what this letter would sell for. So in talking to some people and, and whatnot, it seemed like uh, 20 was the number that everybody was like, ah, we think it's, you know, and it, it was a number I kind of felt like 20, 25 range. So, you know, it, it, the high bid was 20 something, it was 20,000 and change with premium and everything and it ended up being 25, which is pretty much right on the number, you know, and yeah. I, it was something where I thought there could be potential if it, you know, it, it could get crazy, but I mean, you know, given that a year ago, a letter like this, you know, somebody would balk at even thinking it would go for $10,000, wow. you know, went for 25. Now it's just kind of shows you where we're at with things. With yeah. Yeah, not only do you have 20 pages of handwritten Michael Jordan love letter, but you've also got, I think I read in the item description, it's like three different autographs of his on there, on that letter, the envelope uh, in total. So a, a really nice piece and something that not a many, not many people have the chance to own. So I thought that was really yeah. cool. Okay, so let's uh, say hello to a few of our viewers tonight. Uh, Super Striker, welcome to the show. Billy, just finished waiting tables for 12 hours. Got off just in time for Sports Cars Live on my way home. Nice. Glad to have you. My buddy Jay-Z, hello, yeah. sir. Always happy to see you. Sean, welcome to the show. Great to see you. Joey, welcome to the show. How will the virtual expo work? Wait and find out. Come watch my expo preview show with Amit next Wednesday, Joey, come tune into that for sure. We'll explain as much as we know during that time. Ziggy, good evening, everybody. If you haven't checked out Ziggy Knows YouTube channel yet, he started up about a month ago and he does a bunch of really short videos, easy to consume. And uh, he does a recap, a weekly recap, actually, of what's hot on hobby content. He, he has featured Sports Cards Live several times already. So thank you, Ziggy, if you're still out there. Thanks for doing that. We do appreciate it. And uh, everyone check out his YouTube channel as well. Reckless. Good. Yeah. Motorhead. It's an old con. I bought this at a Motorhead concert. Uh, probably about, uh, that was, I think, in 2010 or 11, actually. They were uh, playing awesome. here at Gallagher. Yeah. Yeah. And anonymous Facebook user. What's up, guys? Doing well. If you are an anonymous Facebook user, everybody at the moment, you can go to right here. Um, never mind that. Let me put it here, guys. Uh, go to streamyard.com slash Facebook, click the big blue button, and that will allow us to know your name. And I will definitely in, uh, include your comments much more regularly if you are no longer anonymous. So please go to streamyard.com slash Facebook and click that big blue button. Appreciate that. Eli in the house. Welcome to the show, Eli. Thank you for stopping by. Ziggy. What does Ziggy say? I'm blushing. That was hey man, you you have I like your channel. 
keep it up, buddy. And uh, I do appreciate you uh, featuring Sports Cards Live on your weekly recaps. It's uh, very flattering as well. Thank you so much. All right. So back to the guest at hand. And before we uh, we start talking again, I'm just going to put up here for Jeff, everybody. This You can see on the ticker now, Iconic Auctions is iconicauctions.com. You can go there, register to bid, or consign on any future auction. Jeff, why don't you tell the viewers a little bit now about Iconic Auctions in terms of, you know, how you're different than than the top tier auction companies, how you compete with them, um, and a little bit about the products and the items that you're kind of known for selling uh, over the course of the history of your company. Sure thing. Well, so I'll give you a little bit of background on me because I think that's what's relevant to Iconic uh, since it's my baby, so to say. Um, so I started running auctions in this business uh, about 20 years ago, uh, full time as a uh, as a job uh, with a company called odyssey auctions which at the time was owned by collectors universe oh. um over o- over the course of building that up um collectors universe got out of the auction business just to go into authentication they recognized it's a little bit of a conflict of interest to be authenticating and running companies at the same time so they actually sold off our division to heritage and i continued on with heritage to finish the auction we had at hand um, they treated me very well, uh, but I met that uh, crossroads where I was like, well, I'm either going to work with a big company like this moving forward, or I'm going to go out on my own and give this a shot. So that's what I did. Um, I had a company before Iconic called Universal Rarities that I did from 05 to 07, end of 07. Uh, that kind of got my feet wet in running things all on my own. And then I started Iconic in 2008 on my own. Um, and things kind of snowballed from there. So for over the last 12 years that Iconic's been around, <clears throat> we've been kind of fo- focusing based on what my my areas of, of interest are. And I'm, you know, some people want to be experts in one field, you know, they they love just uh, vintage cards or they love baseball autographs or they're just into entertainment stuff. We're in a, I, I'm into everything. Um, you know, we could do like I said uh, when we were talking uh, pre-gaming last night. We could talk two hours about cards. We could talk two hours about memorabilia. I'm into all aspects of it, yeah. uh, and so that's what Iconic is a reflection of. And now Iconic is primarily well, we've been predominantly autographs of memorabilia based. However, over time, starting from several years ago, we started building more and more cards into it. Um, we deal in everything. Uh, sports is predominantly what we deal in, but it's about 50% of it. The other 50% would be historical uh, memorabilia, music memorabilia, entertainment memorabilia. Um, So it's iconic in a nutshell is almost kind of reflective of what the memorabilia market is. It's always going to be dominated by sports, but there's large sets of interest in these other non-sports areas. And, um, you know, it's been one of those things where over time, just building up connections and, uh, you know, just following through with your word, doing what you can to promote things for people. Um, you know, luckily having some good people that you work with who give you great stuff and give you the opportunity to kind of, you know, show people you can do really good for them. And, um, you know, over the years, year over year, we just keep upping the bar of, what our regular content is and to the point now where you know i feel like we're we're on a really good roll and almost every the last three four months in a row 
we've been on, you know, major media outlets, Fox News, CNN, um, you know, uh, New York Times, New York Post, you name it with with things we've been selling. And um, it just, you know, it's great to get to that point after all this time of uh, putting in all those hours, late nights, not sleeping sometimes and working overnight. And, you know, here we are. Right on, right on. So what I'm curious about, one of the things I'm curious about, I guess, is because, you know, Iconic Auctions is um, a company that I'm well familiar with because I've been in your booth at the National year after year, really, for probably 12 years running now. And I've seen all the cool stuff, the autographed guitars, autographed albums. I've seen PMGs. I've seen Charizards, Shadowless Charizards. I've seen all sorts of amazing, you know, uh, amazing artifacts, really. Um, from presidential signings to, like you said, music, entertainment, sports. You guys, you guys really cover the gamut, and your catalogs are super interesting for someone who isn't really. I'm only a card guy, you know, ninety nine point nine nine percent card guy. But yeah. it's it's sometimes I find myself looking at the other stuff at your booth and like, oh, I wouldn't mind an autographed Nirvana album. That you know, there's very few of them out there from before Kurt Cobain passed away and all that. Like. But, you know, then I ask you, how much is that going to, or I ask Jared, one of your employees, I, how much is that going to end up going? And you, 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 you quote me a price, you arrest him. I'm like, wow, that's, uh, you know, it kind of, it kind of blows my mind. So, but yet I don't really, I don't really turn my head at all when I see a Michael Jordan rookie card selling for a 70 or $80,000. So it's, it's, it's super cool. A lot of our viewers on Sports Cards Live are hockey collectors because i am a yeah. candidate as you well know have you guys yeah. featured any hockey items over the years or any anything that's really stuck out to you as maybe the the, the, the best hockey item or the, a couple that really stick out to you in your memory as being uh really cool valuable pieces just to get an idea of your hockey environment sure. yeah yeah um so right off the bat the one thing that sticks out in my mind and i can't remember i think it was last year's national we had a nice uh, Gretzky. It was last year or two years ago. We had a Gretzky game used jersey from his Kings days that sold for um, I want to say fifteen or twenty something like that. Um, uh, it was. It had. I think it was a Mears A10 jersey, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we dealt in all kinds of different hockey stuff. As you probably know, in talking with him, Jared is kind of the the avid hockey guy in our uh in our uh circle you know whereas i i know the the big guys that we've sold uh you know we sold connor mcdavid rookie everything from connor mcdavid rookie cards to uh gretzky to uh we've i think we sold at uh, one point a bobby or signed rookie which i know you know just the or in itself is yeah. you know almost like like a 52 mantle sorts for the hockey uh hobby for sure um so yeah so you know we, we've definitely dabbled in in hockey stuff and continue to do so in fact I, I one of the real um big components or one of the the big igniters into me getting back into the card market myself i think i shared this with you i bought a gretzky opg rookie I, and i still feel like he's undervalued um i bought that uh, like two years ago just about now or a year and a half ago and uh i i, I love gretzky's stuff i think he's maybe not necessarily going to have the the fanaticism that Jordan's rise has, but I think over time, I think he's going to be due for one of those come ups. You know, he, we haven't seen that huge surge in value on him. No. Well, we've, we, yeah, not the huge one, but just like everything else has gone up in the last few months, we are seeing his, you know, his PSA eight rookies that were selling, you know, OPGs that were selling for 
four to fifty five hundred dollars are now selling for like eight eighty five hundred. The sevens are yeah. you're seeing sevens in the low threes, which were in the high high teens, low twos not too long ago. So there's been a bit of an increase, but not crazy like we've seen with Jordans and some other uh, some other. Uh, you know, iconic Hall of Fame rookies from the uh, all sports um, in, you know, the late eight, the eighties and nineties yeah. guys. So, but I, I think it's, I think it's coming for sure. We have a couple of, couple yeah. of good questions coming in from the, uh, the sure. viewers. So we're going to start with, uh, I'm going to read you both Terry's and Billy's because they're kind of the same thing and it'll give you a second to kind of think of how you want to answer. Um, so do you guarantee the authenticity of all the items that you auction? If so, how do you do that? What is the process? And then the follow-up from Billy is, is there any item that comes to mind that you have turned down for your auctions due to moral reasons or fraud? So I can I think they're a little okay. bit related. You want to touch on these? I'm going to touch on one right off the bat. I'll touch on both of them. Well, I'll touch on both of them. Um, we'll go in the order they were asked. So sure. in regards to guarantees of authenticity, uh, everything that we sell in our auction comes with some form of third-party authentication or we guarantee it to pass uh, a third party. Uh, since we deal a lot in autographs, we don't really sell raw cards. If we sell cards, we, it's almost always graded, um, you know, because that's that's not our, our area of expertise per se. We don't have somebody that's necessarily could identify trimming or anything like that. Whereas we know with autographs, we can pick up a good fair amount of like, okay, it was a secretarial or whatever. So all cards are graded by one of the big three. So to, PSA, BGS, or SGC. Um, in regards to autographs, a similar format however we do uh, everything is offered with either uh beckett who's our preferred provider psa or jsa primarily or like upper deck or steiner you know if it's somebody yeah. that did tristar um if we do offer items that we offer is guaranteed to pass uh beckett where maybe we get the items in past a deadline of or once after we've had beckett there um, but we want to get it into the auction. We'll maybe uh, have them look at images digitally uh, to okay it. Ninety-nine percent of the time, that you know, if they okay something, it'll follow through and and you know, it'll pass. So we'll offer it as guaranteed to pass. And then after the auction, we'll even provide people if they want to then get the full authentication. We'll coordinate that for them. And in the rare instance that it doesn't pass, we, we provide a full refund. So the, the direct answer to that question is, yes, we offer guarantees for the authenticity. That's why, you know, one of the great things of this business is third-party authentication. As much as people want to criticize them or um, highlight some of their oversights, which it's human beings doing it, uh, it, the hobby business, however you want to deem it, would not be anywhere near what it's at today without some form of standards without question um so that that's the the answer to that question in regards to an item that we've turned down based on uh you know if you're talking about fraudulent i, I i've never really had anything where it's like a fraudulent based uh, years and years ago uh somebody approached my company when i was working at the first company with stolen signed checks that we discovered were stolen and I was actually involved in an FBI undercover sting for that, which was kind of interesting. But that's that was a long time ago. But in relation to Iconic, we re, I was actually just talking to uh, Jared about it. Uh, about a year ago, we had somebody approach us, a consigner, who had a manifesto from uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Oh, yeah. Or was that the... Or, 
yeah, yeah. the Unabomber, right? Um, and it was basically, what was it? no, no, no. It was Tim McBay, the guy who bombed the Oklahoma City building. It was some manifesto that he did. And he basically wrote out this, I want to say it was five pages approximately. And it was his justification on what he did. Now, was it kind of intriguing to see? Yeah, I mean, because this guy, you know, did something horrific. But at the same time, it was one of those things where it's like, this is twisted. We This isn't something we want to be a part of. And uh, so we turned it down, uh, you know, as much as the content was, you know, shocking and intrig intriguing to read. Um, it wasn't something I saw that people would respond well to. I thought for the most part, they would be disgusted and turned off by it. And we've kind of taken that direction too in recent, uh, recently. So, you know, you, you may have seen or know sometimes uh, there's people that would write Charles Manson and get him to sign. There was a time period when I would sell that just because I didn't care or whatever. But as I've gotten older, I don't know, maybe it's becoming an older guy or maybe it's just because there's more. I found there's so much stuff coming on through the door. We don't have to mess with that. We, we don't mess with anything from John Wayne Gacy or Charles Manson. It just it just seems like that time has come and, and went and it's not worth messing with anymore. Right. And I mean, you know, you, you've spent already 12 years building up the reputation of iconic auctions. And, you know, as they say, it takes years to build up a reputation and a moment to destroy it. So, you know, yeah, um, it, it's really not in your not in your best interest to take any risks like like that or take on any item that you feel could be questionable <laughs> or that may not pass authentic authentication or maybe too controversial. So I respect that. And I think it's probably a, just a good business decision to steer clear of those potential issues and headlines and all that. Right. You, you, you really need to be careful. That's one of the reasons yeah. why that's one thing that I've always kind of thought of when it comes to trusting certain sellers. I'm not just saying auction houses, but all sorts of sellers is that, you know, especially guys with great reputations. And I'm not saying that, that, that we're the hobby's immune to it. We, we certainly know that isn't the case, but I can't, you kind of have to think about are people really willing to um, gamble away their whole business and reputation to make a few extra bucks today uh, in turn, and then sacrificing everything, you know, the future, the future cash flow of their, of their business just to make a few bucks yeah. on one item now. So um, that, but it's good to know. I, I really like to hear because I was going to ask you, but the fact that you offer money back guarantee, if it doesn't pass, that's really important for any of your customers, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Now, what, one thing to clarify, because, you know, I, I think this is an important aspect of it is, you know, some, sometimes you get into the authenticating the authenticators, so to say. Mm -hmm. And so one thing we don't engage in, you know, like we'll put everything in the auction. And if it comes with a letter from Beckett, it comes with a letter from Beckett. We can't necessarily guarantee JSA or PSA or whoever will have the same opinion. You know, just like in cards, if you know, a card is PSA graded a 10, you can't guarantee it's going to cross over to a Becca 10 or SGC 10 or whatever. You know, so some, but sometimes people can be quirky. Maybe they, uh, you know, they prefer things authenticated by JSA or whatever. And I always tell people, look, you know, we'll show whatever we'll get you clear you know nice images if you if you have your preferred expert that you want to show something to to get their opinion on it by all means do that but mm -hmm. you know the essence and one thing i would relay to people that are are uh, participating in auctions is you know have respect for the process and make sure that if you have questions about something or if you want if you're not comfortable with the authentication that they present to you 
make sure to reach out to your expert or whoever you're dealing with in advance prior to bidding and especially not at the last second and then have a change of heart after an auction's closed because that just you know creates a snowball of problems not only for the auction house but you gotta remember we're representing it for other people and you know we've done our due diligence in providing something with uh, authentication or guarantee to uh, pass something you know it, it, it's uh it's a drag it's a it's a but it's a killer on the sale somebody then goes oh well i wanted to get it authenticated by this company instead or i my cousin's uncle knew uh hank aaron and says that's not a real autograph even though it's got you know a becket with it or a psa or whatever it's like no don't do that after the sale do it before and that way if you don't want to bid on it because of that reason then you don't bid on it no harm no foul as they say you know yeah, I noticed on the Michael Jordan love letter that it was authenticated by two third-party authenticators, being Beckett and JSA. Is it is it yeah. common? Is it common in the auction business to have items authenticated by more than one professional third-party authenticator? I, I think it's becoming more common just because as the time duration of third-party authentication has gone on. Um, you know, it's more, you, well, you have some manifestations now within that realm of a lot of the guys that were at PSA are now over at Beckett. And so, you know, those guys were kind of the pioneers of it. So you might have people that have something that's authenticated by PSA and they want to get it, uh, you know, especially if it's a substantial item, they want to get it authenticated by Beckett, which is basically kind of getting the same guys to recertify it again, just so people know like, hey, this comes from Steve Grad, you know, the it, it's on, or, you know, it, it's also kind of too, like a little bit like cards, like the letter, it, like if it, even if it's a PSA letter, it might be a real old PSA letter where it's done by Steve Grad and Jimmy Spence, which to me is kind of cool because you get, you know, Grad's the Beckett guy, Spence is a JSA guy. It's like getting a two for one, but people like the newer, you know, they want to show the newer letter and there might be some people in the hobby that might see the old letter and be like, or be newer collectors and be like, I've never seen this letter before. So much like people like to send in stuff to get it, you know, just re-slabbed with the new technology on it. Right. People a lot of times like to get uh, additional COAs for substantial stuff, for bigger items, definitely to help add the consensus of, hey, everybody, all the major authenticators in the business like this thing. But also, too, to like be like, okay, this is a cert that looks, you know, like what the certs look like these days. So, right, right. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned Steve Grad. I'll just plug our uh, the the Sports Card Live episode on June twenty fourth. Steve Grad, who's the principal authenticator for Beckett Authentic Authentication Services, he's also uh, been on over a hundred episodes of Pawn Stars. Will be joining me right where you're seeing Jeff right now. That'll be on June twenty fourth. So. I think that's two Wednesdays from now, everybody. So be sure to tune into that. That should be another fun episode. So um, we spoke a few minutes. Well, we spoke earlier about, uh, I mentioned the Nirvana album, which I think was an actual album you had for sale uh, at your your summer auction or the auction that you, uh, you always tie into the national. Um, and yeah. Re Reckless wants to know what that Nirvana album sold for. Do you happen to remember what something like that fetched back then? I'm I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, it was a Nirvana in Utero album, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And um, we've had a, a couple of those, actually. And that sold for right around 10000 at that time. Yeah. Um, and it would probably sell for, shoot, it'd probably sell for more now. But we lucked out and we had, um, it was two girls, I believe it was, that got Nirvana to sign in Paris 
right before they went to Rome and then Kurt OD'd. And that was basically the beginning of the end. Yeah. Um, and the one, one gal consigned it to us and it did well. And then, uh, the second person came forward and said, Oh, my friend, you know, got good money on this out. I have one too. Ugh. So that was, that was kind of a cool thing where we were able to sell both the albums because they made it out to, they made both albums out to both names. It was like two Stephanie and Chris, sure. or I forget what the names were. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'm pretty, and they both sold for about 10,000 each. Here's a question I wasn't planning on asking you, but because you just mentioned to Stephanie and Chris, you know, and I'm not into memorabilia and autographs as much as some people, especially not as much as you are. But can you tell me, like, on the secondary market, is 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 there demand for autographs that are um, that are made out to people's names? So, like, would someone named Jeremy buy an autograph that was made out to Dear Jeff, signed, you know, whomever? Depends on the situation. If it's a modern celebrity that's still alive for the most part if it's inscribed it's a major buzz kill on the value because it's made out to somebody and you can easily go get that person to you know sign it without inscription which is the most valuable version or you know if you want it inscribed to you you know you're jeremy the fan of whoever you just go get them to sign it you know to jeremy instead of sign it to bob you know yeah uh the exceptions to the rule are if it's somebody that's passed away you know, like a, a Chris Farley or a Tupac or somebody that's become kind of like a legend in the making now, but modern name, but you can't get them anymore because they're gone. Uh, and also in the realm of vintage autographs, you know, pre-1970, very common for autographs to be inscribed. And so it doesn't really, you, people will pay a premium to get like an uninscribed photo or something from somebody, but um, it's, so common to see especially if it's like a photo inscribed to whatever random name it is it doesn't necessarily affect the value in fact that's pretty much where your standard your baseline value would be for something and then there would be a little bit of an uptick for an uninscribed version of a of an item vintage item but it's not like a substantial like literally if a photo is worth a hundred dollars uninscribed of a modern celebrity and it uh, inscribed they're still around might be worth half that you know because it's right. just a big hit on value whereas a modern or vintage stuff it's like a hundred dollar photo maybe it's a 125 dollar photo uninscribed it's just kind of the the norms that collectors have accepted given the circumstances and the inscription that you're talking about right now is the personalization inscription you're not yeah yeah about- like to joe best right. wishes not um, not Andy like Stewart. Right, because an inscription that says, you know, Stanley Cup champs, 1985, 86, 87, or something like that, that's not a, a an inscription that would devalue oh, yeah. an item. You just mean, no, no, you just mean the, the personalization. Uh, yeah, yeah okay. personalization. That's that's probably better wording to use. Perfect. Okay, here's a question yeah. from Eli. Uh, hoping, okay. you can, hoping you can think of this one off the top of your head. Most significant item you've personally handled dollar-wise? Uh Easy answer. Oh, good. Uh, two, 2004, I had the privilege of selling George Harrison's Rosewood Telecaster guitar that he used to record the entire uh, Beatles' Let It Be album. And then, most notably, he used that same guitar for the Beatles' final performance, which was on the top of the Apple Studios in England. Uh, for the, It became the movie Let It Be, and they do a performance of uh, the, the album, essentially, I think. Um, and that was the last time the Beatles ever performed live with each other. And I had that, 
guitar in the corner of my office for about three or four months. And at the time it was just like, I was just selling stuff. I was young. I was working like crazy. It's like, okay, cool. George Harrison piece. That's nice. Um, and looking back on it now, it's just like, oh my God, I've seen, uh, uh, write-ups about just the, 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 the guitar itself was substantial for Fender because they'd never done this particular type of guitar, but then to be like, this is a guitar he used and let it be. Now that guitar at that time, we sold that for, with the premium and everything, $435,000 US. Wow. That guitar, that guitar today, at the time, that was the third highest amount a guitar had ever gone for. Um, and we made the CNN scroll bar and that was big news. That guitar today would probably sell for three, $4 million. Not a wow. problem. Crazy, yeah. crazy. Really interesting. Okay. So we have a, a question that I'm going to come to shortly. It's one of Billy's questions, which uh, ties into something that I was planning to ask you. So we'll, we'll handle those two together. Okay. But first I want to go to Richard's question here because it's more timely at the moment. On that note, do you sell autographs where the personalization is wiped off? This is common. This is common practice in the autograph world. Richard's a big in-person autograph uh, collector. Have you ever, uh, do you sell autographs where personalization has been removed? Um, yeah, I think so. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the authenticators identify it if it leaves an impression on the photo. Um, but if it doesn't, they don't. So, uh, you know, there's times where I probably sold that and just never realized that. Uh, my personal take on it is kind of like how I guess you could say the authenticators look at it. If it leaves a remnant, then obviously you've got to state that. Um, and we've, we've even sold some things where it, you know, like if it has like a basic cert card for the autographs, it doesn't specify that. But if we see that, we'll obviously know, you know, if you see a, a you know, a remnant or an impression of an inscription, we'll note like, hey, it has a uh, impression. It appears to have been previously inscribed to a person's name and that was removed. But if it's wiped clean and you can't see an impression, the person that pressed down hard, it's, you know, no harm, no foul. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, before we get to that question I was talking about before, Scott says, Cassie Campbell inscribed an item to me and got my name wrong. LOL. That's pretty funny. Whoops. It remind, <laughs> reminds me of a time I was at a card show and Phil Esposito was autographing and I had my Phil Esposito rookie card and I was doing autographed Hall of Fame hockey rookies at the time. So I cracked it out of its PSA five holder. I got him to autograph it for me uh, mm -hmm. up on stage and it was, it all, it bubbled it like it was this is a 71 uh, the 71 opichi card and the autograph bubbled everywhere so you know it's one thing like scott's disappointed that she got his name wrong but i'm looking at this card with with phil esposito's autograph on it and it looked pretty didn't look didn't look great so i wasn't too happy about that but wow yeah yeah it was must, kind of just must a, have had a high gloss must have had some type of like high gloss finish or something or was yeah it, it must have pin? i don't a bad Sharpie. But the funny thing was that yeah. he noticed and apologized to me. And I'm like, Hey, what, what can we do? I mean, it's the only card I have. I'm not, I'm not wiping it off. That'll just make the problem even worse. So I'll just take it. I'm yeah. happy. I, I happy. I got to meet you. Happy. I got the autograph and life, life goes on. Okay. So I wanted to talk to you and kind of get an understanding how the auction business works because, you know, yep. for guys like me and a lot of card collectors are our perception of auctions is often what we see on eBay in terms of eBay auctions, or it's a lot of these big eBay consigners like PWCC and Probstein, or it's if you're someone who goes to the big card shows, especially the national, and you walk around, you see all these, including Iconic and Memory Lane and Golden and Heritage, you see them all set up with their crazy booths and all the cool items. 
but you still don't understand how it works. So I was kind of curious, like, how does the auction business work? And this ties in exactly to what Billy's asking. It's basically my question. So we'll just ask Billy's. Is there competition among auction houses for certain high-end items? And how do you pitch to a consigner to get their business? And my question was really, how do you source your items month after month? Because you're a busy comp- you're a busy auction house. You do a monthly yeah. catalog auction. So that means every month it's like from hero to zero, right? You've yeah, you have all your items, you sell them, and now you got to start again with new items. And I'm assuming you've got a pipeline, you've got your network. I, I mean, that's obvious, but to yeah. Billy's point, is there competition? And how do you, oh, yeah. how do you, what do you tell a consigner to, to convince them to come to you over them going up down the, uh, down the road to somebody else? Sure. Well, it, it it's a, uh, it's a business that's uh, fruitful. So there's multiple companies. So the answer first off is yes, there's competition. Um, I was just talking to a consigner of mine who uh, told me that, uh, another company had seen what they were doing, seen some of their items and knew it was their items in an auction and, and called them right away. I was like, Hey, why aren't you giving stuff to us? So, you know, it, it is, it is very competitive, uh, where we set ourselves apart with iconic is we kind of take the angle that we are a boutique auction of sorts. Um, so you'll see, if you get the catalogs from Heritage or any of these other companies, they're like umpteen hundred pages. It's like almost like a miniature phone book. There's thousands and thousands of lots. You know, some I would say, you know, anywhere from fifteen hundred and lots and up in a lot of the bigger companies' auctions. And so what you have here is the the market at any given time. There, you know, there's there's so many people in it at any given time, and they can only spend so much money in so many places. Um, so when you have an auction that big, it's a lot of stuff for people to ingest in a single serving first off. Okay. Secondly, a lot of times what happens is they get a lot of great stuff, but then there's, you have so much great stuff, great stuff gets lost in the crowd just because there's so much great stuff. Um, so, you know, when you have too much stuff, um, things get, you know, and that, I guess you could say that's the beauty of the auctions is that things fall through the cracks. They get overlooked in an auction and therefore, you know, they become a good buy, you know, you can buy them and, you know, sell them down the road for more money because people overlooked them. Well, yeah, that's, that's what happens. And that can happen. That happens a lot more times in the bigger auctions than it does when you scale back the amount of lots you have and you put a bigger focus on a smaller amount of items. Um, I can say because we've, I've worked for several bigger companies through the decades that we've snowballed our clientele, we're all, we're, you know, like you said, we're right there with the Golden's Heritage, you know, you name it, at the national in the uh, in the corporate area. Um, so I can say with relative confidence that we all pretty much fish off of the same pool. Yeah, you know, pretty much all their big buyers I know, uh, and they they buy from me. Um, so we're iconic, kind of sets itself apart. Uh, is that, you know, we pitch to people, hey, r- rather than be uh, a, a big fish in a gigantic pond where you're essentially a small fish uh, when you're selling your items, why don't you be a bigger fish in a smaller pond? And, you know, we'll take something that maybe is like um, ends up being on page like 37 and is one of like, uh, you know, 10 baby baseballs and you, you name it big, bigger auction we'll make it the feature of this month, you know? So um, by doing that, we found that 
we have more focus to our auction. We consistently get higher sell-through rates and get higher numbers for things. I mean, we have people, not to brag, but to be honest with you, I know people that make a living simply buying and selling out of bigger auctions, buying and selling what falls through the cracks and flipping it over to companies like ours and other companies that kind of take that approach because, you know, it, it having too big of an auction creates a deficit where that people can pick up on, you know, I mean, that's, yeah. it, it just the way it works. So that, that's our approach is, you know, just more focus. We're, we're smaller and we're, we're, we are that way for a reason. We make up for it by doing monthly auctions. So we can put out, you know, rather than do a single auction event where there's almost 2000 or, or over 2000 lots in one setting and people are like, Oh, I can only either, they can only spend so much a, a single setting or, they're busy. A lot of people, as you probably know, Jeremy, is they're doctors, lawyers, executives. They only have so much time to look through stuff. And so if you're just throwing 2,000 items at them in one setting, they're going to miss some things. Whereas if you skip them five to 800 items a month in the same, in a three-month time span or four-month time span, which is the same cycle that some of these bigger companies take, they're going to probably buy more things and spend more money on it. Right, right. Cool. Okay, good stuff. So Terry wants to know, do you have consigner fees or just make your money off of buyer premiums? I think, do you have buyer and seller premiums or just both. one? Yeah, it's both. Yeah. And that's that's standard in the industry, is it not? Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. I mean, hey, everyone's got to make a living is, is, is kind of my, my motto on that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Awesome. Uh, there's a little bit of a conversation going on in the comments about... Um, well, let's just put it up here. Richard says, a trick with getting license cards signed, use a clean eraser on or your finger to rub off the surface gloss before getting it signed. Much less risk for bubbling. Richard, where were you 10 years ago when I had Phil Esposito sign my uh, yeah. my 65 uh, tops rookie of his? That would have been helpful. Um, you owe me one, Richard. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, and then Paul says, I seem to recall using baby powder to scour the gloss off. It's over 20 years ago I did this. So, any tricks that you might be aware of, Jeff, that have been that that people use to do that, even even as if nothing else, but to help buyers understand what's going on out there and things to watch for. Uh, you know, the the main thing I know of, I've heard of people doing the uh, baby powder thing. To me, that's like you're putting a substance on there. So I've never been a big fan of that. I've never tried it, but I've definitely, uh, especially with some of the more modern cards where they do have the high gloss surfaces. You just use your finger and you, wherever you know the person's going to sign or you're going to ask them to sign, you just kind of rub on there to dull the surface. And uh, usually that does the trick. Um, okay. so, or you could use, or you can use like uh, one of those white erasers to do it. It's the same, same function. But, you know, that seems to provide the mo the least impact on the item, especially if it's a card, because obviously you don't want to impact a card too much. Um, it, it, it's a minimal impact, but it definitely, you know, the difference between not doing that to a card and trying to get it signed and doing it could literally be, especially some of the super high gloss, uh, cards they have now, like the signature literally will just bubble up and almost like vanish yeah. off of the surface because it's so glossy. I remember back, I was at Upper Deck's, uh, offices. This was back in 09, um, along the, when, the, when I went to, to the pack out for the cup, which people have heard me talk about. I remember being in yeah. their, in their office and I was shown a room where, 
among other things, they used the room to test out different pens on different card surfaces. So you walked in there, they had all this card stock and they had a multitude of different Sharpies and other markers that, uh, that, that athletes would use to sign. And they would, they would test it to see what was going to, what ink would stick to which surfaces the best. And I thought that was really nice to see that they weren't just, uh, you know, being frivolous with what markers they're sending out to the players uh, to sign the card. So that was pretty cool. That is cool. That's really yeah, cool. It was a neat thing to see. Uh, another question from Billy, and then I want to move on sort of in, in terms of what we're talking about, but he, uh, do you or one of your employees ever personally deliver items? Do buyers come to pick them up? Like how do you secure, how do you securely ship a $400,000 guitar? Uh, well, in particular, in that case, the guitar was, um, I, I, it's a uh, bit so long. I'm sure they don't mind the names being given. But uh, so the old actor from the 80s, Ed Bagley Jr., showed up to the auction and bid. And it turned out he won it. But it, what it turned out he was doing, because he was on the phone the whole time, he was all nervous when he's bidding. And uh, he was actually on the other line was, uh, um, I forget her first name, but Mrs. Harrison, Mrs. George Harrison. Okay. He was friends with the, he was friends with Harrison's estate and was bidding on their behalf. And what happened with that in that time frame was uh, they paid by wire transfer and then they had specific instructions. They wanted the guitar, you know, we we're from Southern California at that time. And um, they wanted it delivered to Las Vegas. And the vice president of the company actually drove the guitar out from Southern California, Vegas, about a three and a half hour drive, four hour drive simply to just go hand deliver this uh, guitar to some security guys that the Harrison estate had hired. They were literally getting this guitar onto an airplane and flying it back to England to go in the Harrison estate. Most of the times though, uh, you know, we just, we ship via uh, FedEx, USPS, although more, more and more we're shipping via FedEx because it's just more reliable option. But there was one time I hand delivered an item to a person in New York. They purchased a Lou Gehrig's 1935 contract for the Yankees, which was substantial. That that was his first year after Babe Ruth. So it was his first year being the man in New York. And uh, my buyer on that, I, that was actually a private sale I did, but he was insisting. I said, hey, I'll send it to you at FedEx. It's covered under insurance. He goes, no, no, no. Makes me very nervous. Um, I'll just pay you to fly out and deliver it to me if that's okay. Okay, well, I guess we'll do that. Um, one of the most nerve wracking nights in my life because I literally had multiple flight connections and then had to get into New York City and like stay overnight. Um, and I had this sheet of paper essentially that was in my binder in my uh, briefcase. It was worth over a hundred thousand. We sold it at that time for a hundred and ten thousand dollars. So it's kind of nerve wracking doing oh, yeah. I like. I like relying on insurance and the reliability of FedEx and just shipping from my office from point A to point B. But it was it was an adventure. So in, in the rare instances we get something extraordinary like that, we will hand deliver. But most of the time it's just shipping the people. Right. I mean, as as a boutique auction company, as you referred to yourselves, that's the kind of service that a boutique auction company would need to give or would be happy to give to a you know a, a client who's gonna potentially use that experience to base their future purchasing decisions on to come back to you and, and buy more and tell their friends, Hey, this iconic guy, he flew, he flew to bring me the item. Not that you want to make a yeah. habit of that, but 
in certain uh, you know extraordinary circumstances, you you do what you got to do. So I think that if, if I can if I can find six figure things for people and we can make deals where everybody's happy and they need me to hand deliver things, I'll do that on a regular basis if need be. <laughs> you know, you'll, that's you'll not jump, an issue. You'll jump on the airplane for sure. Yeah, for sure. That, that's it. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit. Really interesting on everything to do with iconic and the auction business. Um, Let's talk about cards. You mentioned to me, I mean, yes. your your company is, uh, you guys are autographed memorabilia, not just sports. You're obviously music, you're Hollywood, you're presidential, you're anything, you're famous. Anything famous, you will you will sell the autograph, you know, if it's going to have a market for it. But you mentioned to me that you're, you've always been a card guy personally, but the business hasn't necessarily always been uh, focused on auctioning card lots, but now you are starting to get more into it, both from yep. a for the auctions and I think just for long term investments for yourself. As we talked about earlier, you know, we know what's happened with Last Dance and Michael Jordan, but what is you know personally what what do you see happening right now in the hobby in terms of investment potential, in terms of new money coming into the hobby that's driving all these values? Because the big concern that I have. And I'm not saying I, I, I'm I'm scared. It's just something I think about, and I think a lot of other people are thinking about too. Is are these new levels of value that have been established over the last, really, you know, one month to twelve months? Are they sustainable, in your opinion, based on what you're seeing out there? Yes, I would say for the most part, yes. Um, something that uh, I I'm not sure if it can sustain, in particular, just off the top of my head, is. I see like this tops 2020 project that's going on um, and just that it's literally, they're just doing print runs and, you know, it's something it's modern interpretations. Now there's, there's something, there's positives and negatives to take away from that. The, the negative that, or potential negative I see is that tells me like people might not understand the value of, of scarcities and, you know, the, it's, I mean, there's print runs, small print runs on that, but still it's like, three, 4,000 that's coming right directly in the case to you. So I would imagine if you have them graded, most of them are going to grade out at least a nine, like mm -hmm. at the very least, probably yep. a lot of tens. Um, but I think what it touches on, which I would, I would relate to is I, I think cards have always had uh, served the purpose of almost being like modern day pop culture art. Mm -hmm. Um, most people won't relate to Monet or Renoir or Picasso or names of, you know, famous artists from the past. It just doesn't resonate for the average person or even the modern person for the most part. But what does resonate for a lot of people is sports. I mean, that's, you know, that's what most people grow up around. It's, you know, you see it on TV, you see the cards, in, you know, in the store and, you know, you collect them as kids. Um, and especially now with the way the designs of the cards, you know, they've come a long ways from when you and I were little guys, you know, buying at the, at the, uh, liquor store, they really are like little works of art. And I think, um, that's representative of what you're seeing is the response. People are legitimately identifying them as commodities. Uh, the, the weird kind of uh, illogical response with the card market in light of the whole COVID situation, I think is something that is, was almost overdue in that people are going, okay, the stock market, any given day, 
anything can happen. I'm not in control of that. I, I have no emotional attachment to uh, the semiconductor company I own shares in. And then all of a sudden, something in the world happens and those values tank. But I, I love, uh, you know, I was watched Gretzky from the time he was in Edmonton on forward through LA and St. Louis, New York, wherever. Um, I can always relate to that. And he's the greatest of all time. Um, I'm going to go buy his rookies because those are, you know, those are a great investment. You know, it's it's something that people it's tangible investments that people can relate to that has a scarcity that has an established market um, that if the whole world goes upside down, at least it's something cool you have that you can hold on to. And I think um, I think people are really responding to that. And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of new money is people that are maybe um from a younger generation that are now coming into money, you know, people in their thirties, late twenties, thirties, forties, um, that, that understand it, they get it. Um, I feel like I'm one of those people. I always felt, I felt that way about cards. If you could talk to Kyle about it five years ago, six years ago, I'm like, cards are coming back around again in a, in a really positive way. I think we should get in on it. We didn't get in on it quite as well as we should. And Kyle's probably cringing with me telling it that right now. Uh, cause we have those hey, uh, sob store. Yeah. <laughs> hey buddy. Uh, so we have those sob stories, but it was, I just saw it coming about, um, same thing with the Jordan, the 86 Jordan card. Um, to me, it was, it was clear as day that it is the 52 mantle of the modern generation. Um, it, it, it's a beautiful card. It's, you know, it's not even his rookie card, much like the 52 mantle isn't technically his rookie card. But something about the card, the design of it, the year, it, it all comes together and kind of encapsulates a generation or encapsulates that time period. And the Jordan rookie is that card for the modern day. Um, so, yeah, so I, I've been really excited about cards. And I feel like, yeah, like anything, any commodity, you might see a dip or a cooling off period. But are we going to see a complete fallout of especially – Ma, um, you know, the, the truly rare iconic name names, uh, you know, where it's not, you know, a print run of like 12,000 and 10,000 of them are authenticated PSA tens. No, because there's genuine rarity with cards where you might see some, some difficulties in the cards. Like I, I still don't quite understand the logic of like the King Griffey junior, the 89 upper deck King Griffey yeah. junior rookie. It's just, there's so many of them and so many of them are rated strong. You could argue that about Jordan, but Jordan is a, a complete different. He's an he's an animal of his own. The old, last time we had an athlete like Jordan affect society was Babe Ruth. Yeah. Um. You, you know, and there's you know, like Gretzky is an iconic legend, um, but Jordan is he's a cultural force, whereas Gretzky never really kind of became that. But he definitely revolutionized hockey. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, so. Jordan. Jordan is a global phenomenon. Where, yeah, yeah, and basketball is globally uh, adored and played everywhere. And it's 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 easy to play basketball in any climate in any country. All you need is a you know a basket and a ball. Whereas hockey, you need ice skates and you need ice, and that's a that's that's yeah. a lot tougher to find uh, in most places in the world. So, yeah, uh, you need yeah. equipment. You need equipment, and from what I understand, I luckily I don't. From this standpoint, I don't have kids that are into hockey to play it, but most parents I talk to lament to me about 
the expense of buying hockey gear to get a full setup for a kid. Oh yeah, buying and then renting ice time is very expensive too. It's it's uh yeah, it's a very it's a very uh financially constraining uh sport to put your kids into. But you touched on Tops Project 2020. I don't want to spend much time on it because we've talked about it before and everybody's talking about it right now. Um, but what I do like about Tops Project 2020, despite a couple of the cards that have had crazy print runs, is that it is mixing or it's bringing together sports and art. And a lot of these artists, yeah. there's 20 artists in this project. Some of them have like upwards of a million followers on Instagram and elsewhere. And I think what's cool is that we're getting all these eyes on the sports card hobby because of that that project that tops is doing so it's kind of neat and if you know I, I am i'm picking up the odd card here and there that looks cool you you mentioned that you know what you saw happening with the values they were they were skyrocketing and people just weren't understanding print runs and i don't know if you if you're watching the last couple of weeks but there's one card in particular is kind of like what it's kind of like the uh, the flagship card for the product. It's a trout card by an artist named named Ermzy. So the Ermzy trout is sort of the you know it's the one card that I, that's identifying the whole project right now. And that could change. They're only at card 110 or so, and there's 400 total. So this yeah. thing's going until Christmas time. But and they they basically they basically release two cards a day, five days a week. So it's going to go for a while. But that Ermzy card, you know, you buy these cards at the Tops website for twenty dollars. And they sell as many as they sell. And that's the print run. Yeah. I think there's like just under 3,000 of that card. 2,911 seems to pop into my mind. That card shot up from that $20. It sold, there were completed listings on eBay as high as $3,000 about three weeks ago. And now they've come way back down. And now that card is selling for under $1,000. So it shot up. A lot of those purchases were never paid for by the buyers because the card immediately started coming down in value quite quite fast day after day 20% losses or 20% declines day over day and now the card is starting to level out at that seven or eight hundred dollar uh, mark now will that last at that value who knows but back yeah. back to the question about money in the hobby and investing and all that I had Brian Gray who's a common friend of ours on the show yeah I know um, BG well yeah, BG was on here. I think it was episode number eight or nine or something like that. But it was probably about six or seven weeks ago now. And he made the claim that he had spent a million dollars on sports cards over the past, whether it was one week or one month. I think he said in the past week he'd spent a million dollars on sports cards. And to me, that was an indication of, you know, there are, there's a lot of money being poured in right now. And he's one of these guys. And he really made it sound like he knew of, other guys doing the same thing. So I'm wondering, and I, this isn't necessarily a question for you. I don't know if you know the answer, but do you think that there is all like people ask me all the time, just as in my normal day-to-day -day life, you know, when I talk about the hobby, I say, this, this is, this is what's been going on. And they say, well, who's, where's all this money coming from? And I say, I, I don't exactly know. I know one guy who spent a million dollars in April, but that's about all I know. So yeah. do you really think there is all this money coming in? Is it is it people of our vintage who are just discovering it again because it's in the media and people are bored during COVID? Or is there really some um, some pickup of it from, you know, in the investment community, the investor community, are actual investors looking to diversify out of traditional equities into sports cards right now? Are you seeing any of that? I, I can tell you, firsthand that I've seen uh, an interesting thing, a number of people that have bought 
cards from us in the last several months where we've been offering some substantial cards. Uh, their addresses where we ship to are like uh, equity firms, financial firms. Yeah. So, I mean, for, uh, firsthand, I can say I've seen some some names and some addresses where these are people that are are do finances for a living um, and they're buying some substantial stuff. Um, I've heard rumors about um, people bringing in money and, you know, first off, cards was already, they were gaining momentum before COVID. I mean, they were already a hot commodity. It, it just, in fact, I think most people, and you probably would, would agree to this, is I think most people were worried that COVID was going to be the end of the ride with it. it was like, oh, okay, well, now we don't. We don't even know if we're getting toilet paper or not. Like right. that was that was all that was almost like my joke with people when they would talk about this stuff. Is I go, it's a great thing to invest in because as long as we aren't fighting over like food and toilet paper, like this stuff's always going to hold great value. And then it was almost like, oh, okay, well, like maybe there's going to be food shortages. Maybe we're not going to have toilet paper for months on end. It's like, is this really yeah. the end? Maybe, the maybe, opposite. maybe we're going to have to use our cards for toilet paper. I mean, yeah. Are, are yeah, they yeah. Are, are they just worth what they are as cardboard now? Because uh, you know, if, if depends where the world's going. But I'll let you continue. Yeah, but no, I mean, I, so cards have been gaining momentum for a while, and I think it's part of, partly the nostalgia of it, partly the fact that they can be commoditized very easily, um, and it, uh, part of it is that people I think are genuinely looking for alternate investments from things like the stock market where you don't it's like okay why invest in something where you have zero connection you have nothing in your hand you just have your whatever company you're with fidelity or vanguard whatever the only thing you have to show for whatever your net worth is is a statement and uh and i've always felt this way even from the very beginning when like um the uh 2008 the great recession hit i felt like Anything could happen. There's forces working in our world, especially in the macro scale, that are beyond our knowledge or control of what they do. But when they do something, all of a sudden, the whole market's affected. It could be in a tailspin, and you know, we could we just pray that you know they that the things the ship writes itself. Yeah. But I, I feel too like when you're investing in cards, there's an there is an era of feels like you're more in control of what you have. Maybe it's because you have is a tangible asset. But um, I've just I, for years, like I said, I, I thought it's great, you know, especially if you're investing in the right type of people. Um, and obviously that, you know, could lead us off into a branch of, you know, who to invest in, who not. But I named my company Iconic Auctions because I always felt like the iconic names are the right way to go. And that's yeah. kind of my general philosophy. If you're going to invest in something like if you're a fan of something, or somebody or an athlete or whatever, go ahead and invest in, you know, go ahead and buy something on them if you like it. But if you're looking to invest, that's a whole different animal. And you need to stick to names that people that your kids are going to know, my kids are going to know, their kids, kids are potentially going to know. Yeah. yeah you know, and not a, go ahead. So I, I was just going to say, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole group of uh, sports card investors out there right now. And they're really focusing on, the rookies, the current year rookies. And, and, you know, in my opinion, they are, they're, they're doing very, they're like day traders, you know, they're just looking at, at yeah. what they can buy today to sell tomorrow. 
But if you're looking for long-term investment, my since I've been in this hobby or since I've you know had money to invest, I've always taken that same approach. You want to invest in Hall of Famers or yep. or or you know soon to be guaranteed Hall of Famers. And even even when you're investing in Hall of Famers, it's not all Hall of Famers. I mean, not all Hall of Famers are going to be legends or going to be are, are going to outlast themselves in terms of will their names carry on? Will collectors still want their cards, you know, long after they've, they've died and their, or their, their career has ended and then they go on to pass away. So I'm a big fan of, of investing in the icons, the legends, um, and collecting the other guys. But a lot of these current investors are, they're, they're buying this year's prison basketball and they're looking for Zion Williamson. And I mean, I don't know how, how you can call that investing really, unless you really think that, that, um, his cards are going to, shoot up and like he's already selling for as much as some Michael Jordan, some Kobe, some LeBrons. It's it's already up there and he's played half a season. So um I, I guess my point is that if you're investing in sports cards, long-term investing, you got to go with icons. And to the oh, point yeah. to the point of the name of your company, if you are investing in modern day cards, I don't consider you an investor so much as I consider you a day trader. And I don't mean that with any negative connotation, I'm not judging. I'm just saying you're not really taking a long-term investment approach. You're taking a short-term investment approach, which to me is just aligns more with what, what day traders really do um, to, to generate income from their short-term investments. Um, it's the same mentality. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Let's just get to a couple of questions that have come in here uh, while we were chatting. Al says, you mentioned that you handle historical items. Do you remember what the oldest item is that you've sold? Anything from medieval times? Oof, um, I don't think so from medieval times. I'm trying to think back. I mean, I've handled documents. One of the, well, one of the earliest things I own and it would be about as early as I can think of a handle as a, 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 a item, a handwritten autograph from Marie Antoinette. Oh. And I'm trying to think how far back that is at um, just off the top of my head. I can't recall. Is that like 1600, something like that? Now I've had, now that I'm, I'm thinking about it, I've had some from like wait years ago, somebody gave me some old sheets of a Bible from, I want to say the 1400s. Oh wow! Um, with with the original like hand stamped pressings, um, but as far as like autographs go or or handwritten documents from notable names, uh, you know some of that early uh, European uh, royalty stuff I've handled, and I think it goes back as early as the fourteen hundreds that I've handled. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, who I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they're the ones that sent Columbus off on his journey. Um, I've had a document from them, so that'd be 1400. So yeah, I mean, it can, and you, you know, writing from back then, like they, they would use what we see as an F now, like a lowercase F, they'd use that for S's. Um, so it's, it's almost like when you're reading some of those documents, it's almost, even if it's English, it's almost like deciphering a foreign language because they used, they used certain forms of the letters differently back then. Okay. Really cool. Sean has yeah. a question. Sean was my Sean was my guest back on. Uh, I'm just looking at my notes here. Back on June the sixth, and oh, uh, so Sean comes from the investment world, the finance world. He wants to know: cool. is insurance is insurance getting more expensive over time for high value items? And he can you? And I don't know if he means shipping them or just as in terms of insuring the items you own. But can you speak to either of those? 
Um, my answer for that is I don't think so. I okay. haven't seen a big surge in my insurance policy. Now I use a dealer specific insurance policy for collectibles, not necessarily giving them a plug, but just, uh, and you, maybe you guys talked about it before, but I use collectibles insurance agency. Okay. Um, I think they're out of Ohio or, or Delaware or something like that. But anyways, I I've used them for years. Um, well, you know what, Jeff? Yeah. And feel free to plug them because I know there's a lot of people out there who don't know where to turn to to have their collectibles insured. So if you know somebody, yeah. please, please I do. Would, I I will plug. I would I will recommend them. I won't say plug. Uh, I would more so recommend them because not only have they done my insurance for years, but I've had a couple claims with them, and it's was smooth as can be. Um, no issues, no fighting over values or anything. Um, and the payouts were within like 30, 45 days. I think their website is collectinsure.com, but it's collectibles insurance agency. And they've been around for, for decades, for a couple decades. They've been around since the early 2000s that I can think of. And um, it's a great company to use. It's, you know, like I said, my dealer policy covers everything. So for like when we when we ship something a high dollar item be a FedEx or whatever, a tip to people out there: if you're shipping via uh, like a FedEx and you pay for insurance, make sure that they actually will cover collectibles under their insurance because, in particular, FedEx they will gladly take your money and for the claimed insurance value. But if you go to make a claim with FedEx and it's a collectible. They will send you whatever the cost is for the postage and a hundred dollars, no matter what, even if you claim $50,000 in value and say here on this subset of our terms here, we do not insure anything that's deemed a collectible for any more than a hundred dollars. Okay. So word of advice to people, if you're, you, if you're sending through the carriers, I think UPS will cover collectibles, but FedEx in particular, unless you have a, your own separate insurance policy, they will not cover collectibles. So just know what you're getting. I know some people. Yeah. 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 They they won't tell you that up front. No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, A couple more comments. Terry says, leave my Gretzky's loan. He, Terry's probably got about 800 Gretzky (laughs) in in his collection. Um, Nice. Ziggy says, amazing insight. I have heard of sports card index funds. And I think what, what I thought was amazing insight was when you mentioned that you've had items that have been shipping to equity funds and other finance companies yeah. that look seem to be like they're purchasing assets for portfolios. So that is really great insight for us to hear that there's actual some actually some firsthand knowledge of investment. Well, I, I wouldn't even, I, I, Jeremy, I wouldn't even go that far to say, I would say more so these are guys that deal in finances, whether what they're using it right. for, if they're using it for funds or not, but these are guys, their life is built around investing in it wisely for people. And if they're investing their money in it, into it, I think yeah. that's a good indicator that we're in the right direction to be investing right. into this. Thing. Right. I, I made the false. I made the false uh, assumption there that they were buying them for some sort of fund, but they might. That's just where they work, and they could be collectors who were receiving yeah. them in their office. So, very fair comment. Uh, Ziggy goes on to say, "Look at National Treasures ba- basketball and the five hundred thousand dollar bounty." So, uh, yeah. I, you, I you saw that. Me. Yeah, so yeah. one guy one guy comes out and offers three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for this Zion Williamson card that was just released like this week, and then Dave and Adams comes out, or yeah, Dave and Adams comes out, I believe, or was it blowout? Yeah. Dave and Adams comes out, blowout. It was blowout, blowout, 
and they offer 500,000 for the card. And then someone else has now offered 550 for the card. The card isn't even, the card isn't even in the public domain yet. It hasn't even been pulled yet. And there's already a bidding war for it. And the best part is that the person who is the, the people that they're, that they're bidding to don't even know that they own this card yet. So once someone pulls yeah. that card, they, they're coming into half a million dollars pretty much immediately. So that, that'll be, but let's also mention that to open up one pack of this stuff, I believe is like $7,500. So the it's high risk. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. High risk, but certainly, yeah. certainly high reward coming up for some of these guys. Uh, another comment just came in from team Hezekiah. Interesting. Doesn't BGS only use FedEx. So all items they're returning to customers are covered for only a hundred bucks. Wow. Well, we cannot comment well, no, no, no. on that. So yeah, I mean, yeah, let me, I mean, I can't speak for them, but I'm assuming they carry an insurance policy with an insurance company, just like I do. I ship almost exclusively FedEx, um, but I ship it because they're reliable and my insurance company gives me a high value. Uh, I can ship uh, packages for $100,000, up to $100,000 via FedEx and they're covered. Uh, but I carry a separate insurance policy that covers the collectibles. And that's a nice thing about if you, if um, again, just more so for the information for collectors, if you do get a insurance policy, which I would highly suggest, some people will do it on their homeowner's policies. They'll, they'll just add an addendum or whatever. When push comes to shove and you've got to make a claim, if this is not a company that's familiar with making claims on collectibles, they'll, you know, they'll go out and they'll, they'll try and lowball you or whatever. Whereas uh, in particular with collectibles insurance agency, that's what they do. That's what they specialize right. in. And I've had zero issues with claim value as long as I showed invoices, payment, you know, what items were paid for or what they sold for an auction when something went awry. Thankfully, I've only had to do it twice in 20, almost 20 years now, but, um, you know, no issue at all. But getting back to the point, I would almost guarantee you that they carry a separate insurance policy like me. Yeah, guaranteed. Yeah. A company like that is not going to mess around with $100 uh, coverage when they're shipping, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cards out there. So to Team yeah. Hezekiah, let's make sure that we're understanding everything that was being said here tonight and not make any sort of false assumptions because I certainly don't want you to leave viewing this with any misinformation. So I don't, we, we, we basically are saying that is not the case. You are likely very well insured when you're receiving your cards back from Beckett. Um, okay. So speaking of Beckett, it's a great tie-in now. Speaking of Beckett, Beckett, um, Beckett Authentication Services, the lead authenticator is Steve Grad, and Steve Grad yeah. um, is a regular guest. Yeah, you're welcome, Team Hezekiah. Is, uh, is a regular guest on Beckett Live Presents. So everyone's familiar with Beckett. Beckett has a, uh, a live sports card streaming show, just like I do here with Sports Cards Live. Uh, hosted by Eric Norton, who's a guy that I know decently well, great guy. And on Tuesdays, he hosts as his guest, Steve Grad. And they call those segments Grad School. And they talk about autographs and autograph authentication and what's going on in the hobby. I watch the show, really interesting stuff. I recommend everybody check it out. Iconic, and I want to bring this up, Jeff, because I was, you know, I was watching an episode of, of Beckett Live Presents with Steve Grad. And um, I saw- There we are. I saw my well. I saw my good friend Jeff's iconic auctions logo on the in the background, basically saying that you were sponsoring the show, and I thought that was really cool. 
So because, you know, just it's neat that, you know, we all know each other and there you are sort of uh, sponsoring that show. And Steve's a great guy that we both know very well. Um, How did it come about that you started to sponsor that show? And, um, you know, have you, has it paid any dividends for you yet? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the people at Beckett reached out to me and told me what, you know, they were doing. We're always looking for opportunities to promote. Um, And Steve's been a a great friend and, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's always helped out in promoting iconic. And so, you know, we just essentially returning the, returning the favor, but also seeing the opportunity with the promotion. And so, yeah, we've had a couple people reach out. We've had signups, you know, where that attribute it to, uh, to watching the show. So, you know, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Cool. Okay, cool. That's funny. Paul says, is Jeremy asking for a sponsor? I'm actually not, but, uh, (laughs) You know, I'm not I'm not in the media business like Beckett is. And um, and I certainly don't need to generate a profit from this show. I, I haven't monetized Sports Cards Live uh, at all. And I don't really have any plans to at this point. But uh, but Paul, thanks for thinking of me. And if you're looking for if you want to be my agent and help me do that, hey, maybe we could talk. Um, OK, there you go. So let's talk about uh, the we've touched on it already a couple of times, but I want to come back to the 1986 Michael Jordan Fleer rookie card. PSA 10, just to have a baseline. That card, you know, a year ago was selling for about $20,000 US in a PSA 10 holder. Now it's selling. Now it's it's selling for about $70,000, which has actually come down from a couple sales in the 90s and 80s. And now we've sort of settled that $70,000, $75,000 level in the last few that have sold. Do you think that that, I mean, you mentioned it yourself just a few minutes ago that Michael Jordan is in a league of his own. And I completely agree with that. There's nobody in the, there's no athlete that is worth investing in as, Mike, as much as Michael Jordan is. And really, I don't know that anybody even comes close. All you have to do is look at the Jordan brand with Nike. You know, they pay him like $300 million a year. They pay him $300 million a year to carry his name. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's just, unbe- it's mind blowing, really. He has reach in every corner of the globe. Um, do you think that $70,000 for that card is sort of plateaued? Has it topped out? Does it have more room to grow? What does it take for it to grow more? Is it going to recede in value? What do you think about the value of that card, that specific card right now? Uh, so my thoughts are, uh, as I discussed with you uh, last night, was I, I saw it coming. I saw it coming from a mile away, uh, but I didn't see it coming this quickly. Uh, last summer, really, like right after we we came back, we're coming back from the national. I remember having a conversation with your brother, being like, I, "It in time, this Michael Jordan rookie card is going to be a, a six figure card. Um, uh, we should probably jump on it." But you know, uh, we get busy, and you know, we, we our main business is memorabilia, and so we we you know moved on some other things. But sure enough, I mean, I my my time frame for it maturing to a hundred thousand dollar card was two to four years. I was thinking in two to four year time span, it's going to be a six figure card. I wasn't necessarily thinking like nine months, 12, you know, 12 months. Um, but it doesn't shock me. Um, the re- the recession or the receding we're seeing of it, I think in part is because I think as it's made this big leap and as people are going, wow, like, okay, now this card's getting into some serious territory you're starting to see um, just in my observation. So a PSA 10 to me, I've seen an ample amount of them 
where they're noticeably off-centered, especially on the back. And I think if you're spending more than $50,000 plus on a card, and especially if you know it has a larger population for a card that, you know, that's one of the interesting dynamics of this card is it's got, you know, I think last time I checked the PSA population, it was like 15,000 or something like that, some crazy number like that. Um, and that's just PSA. Um, but when you have a card like that that has a large population and now all of a sudden they're touching six-figure range and you start looking and you go, well, that doesn't, you know, just knee-jerk reaction. doesn't look like a 10 to me. It doesn't look perfect to me. You know, I can see right off the bat it's off-centered or, you know, it's got that red border. So, you know, you might see this, an edge look a little funky or whatever. I think people are that have money are picking up on that and going, wait a minute, I'm not going to just jump on this crazy train just because it's hot and try and catch, you know, catch it while it's surging up the market. I'm going to wait for a really great looking 10 to come around and I'll buy it. And I think that's why we've maybe seen it recede a little bit. I don't think it's because it's a bad, it got overpriced or whatever. Um, I think, you know, just like when 52 Mantle, you know, first hit into the hundred thousands, people are going, Oh my God, it's just a baseball card. And I want to hit like a half a million or a million. You could even use the Honus Wagner card. What yeah. fill in an iconic card and people will always criticize when it hits a milestone. But uh and the Jordan card is different because it's gonna be a substantially larger run and availability than most other iconic cards. But no doubt. And I think that's if anything, that's what's adding to the intrigue of that card. And why you might maybe we'll see, I think sooner rather than later, we'll see a 10 that's like a beautiful 10. It's gonna put pop it right back over a hundred thousand. But yeah. people are sophisticated enough to realize, like, okay, just because that 10 went up for a hundred thousand, this one that looks like it's 70, 30 on the back, even though it might be 50, 50 on the front, I'm not gonna spend a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's a low, that's a low end 10, you know. Right, right. So what what I'm what I picked up from what you just said, the key piece there is that I think what you're saying without saying it specifically is that not all tens are the same. Not, and, oh, and, yeah. and at that same logic, not all nines are the same. And this is something that a lot of uh, newcomers into the hobby don't really understand. They will say, and I just, I just saw it happening with Gretzky rookies on, on a Facebook group this week where somebody posted up a picture of a really nicely centered PSA seven and said, Wow, this is a, this is it broke three thousand dollars. There must be funny business going on, because the, the other ones are selling for like twenty two, twenty three. But I so I posted and I said, well, I, maybe you didn't notice how great, how 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 nice the premium worthy centering was on this particular copy, because people will pay a premium for a nicer card within the same grade point, and so many people think a seven is a seven, an eight's an eight, a nine's a nine, a ten's a ten. But I mean. All right, that implies that there's only 10 different physical states of condition a card can be in. No, there's an infinite. Jeremy. It's infinite. Jump yeah, in. Let me, let me jump in only because you brought up Gretzky and you brought up a seven. I'll give you a perfect example of where I defy, I personally defy that logic. So like I told you, the Gretzky card was the first one that made me jump back in. I bought a Gretzky seven, OPG seven. I bought it primarily because I started looking at the Gretzky's and going, wow, like, I've seen some of these cards that are graded like eights or nines even, and the centering to me isn't all that great. And uh, like we've discussed, to me, centering is almost, uh, it, it, it's the first thing you see on a card. It's just the first appearance. You, you measure it up right away. 
you know, you might have to zoom in to see like a, if there's a little bump on the corner or whatever, centering straight on. I So year and a half, almost two years ago, I want to say like 18 months, I bought my first jump back in was a Gretzky 7. I paid 23 or $2,400 for it, which at the time I knew I was paying above market. But the reason I paid that was because it was exceptionally well centered. Uh, the edges and corners were clean. The the surface of it or the, the printing, we talked about this last night, wasn't 100% clear. But I felt like on the whole, it was a superior card for being a seven. And I wasn't willing to, I didn't have enough money or I wasn't willing to spend as much money on an eight. Because if I'm going to buy something, I want it to be the nicest version of that grade I can find. Yeah. Um. So I, so I paid... Twenty three, twenty four hundred dollars, eighteen months ago when they were going for in the teens, you know, when yeah, they were you, going for like fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars on a good day, I paid four hundred dollars above what they were going for back then. Yeah. So you, yeah, yeah you, I mean, that's, you knowingly and willingly paid over the average price for that grade because yeah. you found one that was really strong for the grade. I use that terminate that terminology all the time, strong for the grade, because yeah, you know it's. It, it real when someone tells me that, well, how could you ask this much for your seven? They're going for this much lower. Right away, I know I'm dealing with somebody who doesn't really understand grading yet or doesn't really understand that they're not all the same. And it's just something that I can't say enough times because it's super important. And I'm the same way with as you were with your PSA seven OPG Gretzky, Jeff. I will pay more for a nicer card because I know that that's, you know. It, it's going to be worth it in the long run. And another thing that I, I will say is that, you know, you can look at it. Bobby Orr is a good example because Bobby Orr's card is often off-centered right to left. It's it's a horizontal card, as you as you know, yeah. and the viewers know. But, you know, I've seen PSA 6s that are horribly off-centered that I wouldn't even take in a trade straight up for a PSA 4 that is nicely centered that might have a really a technical flaw that is super hard to see with the naked eye. So, you know, I would pay more for a PSA for that PSA four than that specific PSA six Bob Yor. I would pay more for a four than I would for a six if we're talking about those two specific cards. So, I mean, grading, you know, it gives you a, it gives you an indication of what a card might be worth or what condition it's in, but it's not the end all be all in terms of valuation. It's really you have each card, you know, it, it really comes down to the, the basic premise of buy the card, not the holder. And yeah. if you want the nicest card, you're going to have to pay up unless you find a seller who doesn't understand that all sevens are not the same. So um, anyway, good, good stuff. I'm glad I'm glad to hear that you were willing to pay a premium for a card that you thought was superior to the other cards of in, in the grade. I mean, that's that's really what a, what a someone who's really on their game is going to do in this in this business, I believe. Yeah. And, you know, you, in order to do that too, you've got to kind of, you got to have a little huspa, you know, so to say, you know, you got to be willing to say like, Hey, I know I'm paying more, maybe even a little more than what the market bears for this card on the surface. But you know, if you're buying the right people over time, like I, I haven't even paid attention to it, but I'm pretty sure based on some of the numbers you told me with the Gretzky that, you know, now my card is, you know, selling for more than what it, it would, you know, more than what I paid for oh. it you know, about a year ago. So if it's, if it is a really nicely centered seven, I would, I would value that card today at about based on what I'm seeing, you know, if I would 
think it's current fair market value. If you were to list it and sell it, you'd get at least $3,200 if it's as nice as you're making it sound like, which I'm sure it is. Yeah. So very yeah, possible. Um, Ziggy yeah. says, Jeff, give Jeremy a shout out to your social media. We need more viewers. Hey, can always use more viewers for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank you, Ziggy, for the suggestion. Um, <clears throat> well, okay, man. I mean, uh, we've covered pretty much everything that's on my list here to cover today. Um, I can't think of much more unless you want to just, you mentioned maybe a couple of other cool items that have gone through your hands over the years. If you want to do that, that'd be great. Otherwise, yeah. I, mean, I think we're pretty good. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, we've, we've sold all kinds of, we could talk for days about that. I mean, we've sold game use stuff. So a really cool thing that I think relates to the current uh, state of the, the world really right now um, that we just sold ironically in, January or February, right before obviously civil rights has now become front and center is we had a letter, typed letter from Dr. Martin Luther King. And it was written two weeks after the March on Washington. And in the letter, he mentions, he he's uh, talking to somebody who is, he was an associate of his. And he starts a paragraph and he goes, I have a dream that one day like he reiterates what he said in the dream speech to this person. And wow. he talks about how he was, when he saw everybody on the March of Washington, he openly wept when he saw the amount of people that had come out for him and uh, everything it was just, you know, even, you know, then a few months ago, looking at it was every time I look at the letter, it just kind of gives you chills. Cause it's like, you know, that's, that's it. That's, you know, yeah. content like that, you know, and that's one of the coolest thing about memorabilia is when you get letters like the Jordan or like the Martin Luther King, where this is just content and you know, so you have this figure that's a larger in life person and there they are sitting there and they're basically kind of like putting out either their, their, their cornerstone thought, like in Martin Luther King's idea in his point of reference, his cornerstone thought that becomes, you know, the, the, the echo of the civil rights movement and is relevant even to today, or you have a guy like Jordan who is sitting there and he knows this tidal wave of something special is upon him. And he goes like, Hey, I've got to act a certain way. I've got to present myself a certain way because I'm not Michael Jordan, the guy that is a nine to five guy. That's not who I am yeah. to see something like that direct from their mind onto a piece of paper is special. Yeah, for sure. So cool. So cool. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and the different, you know, Martin Luther King, when you talk about an item like that, you're talking about world history, you know, yeah. where, and, and not to say that Michael Jordan isn't world history because he transcends sport and he is a cultural icon. So he's almost on yeah. that same level as a Martin Luther King in terms of his impact on the world. I, I mean, I say that without full knowledge of these guys impacts on the world truly, but you know, Michael Jordan transcends it. And so does Martin Luther King. So, but sports oh, and yeah. sports in general do not, you know what I mean? Like they, they're yeah. a big, they're, they're part of the cultural fabric of, of our countries and the world. But um, when you talk about someone like a Martin Luther King, that really, that really, uh, you know, that must be really interesting and a highlight in your career to be able to deal with items of historical significance like that. So I think that's really cool. Well, yeah. Okay, man, listen, um, thank you for joining me tonight. This has been a thank lot of Thank you for having fun. me. I mean, it's always fun chatting with you, especially at the National when we when we go for dinner, you, me, Kyle, and our father. It's always a great time. I look forward to the next time that we can do that. Um, Absolutely. When we don't have to social distance and we can have some social closeness. 
hopefully that will be around uh, the national of 2021. We can uh, get together and do something like that again. So thank That's you. That's the hope, yeah. brother. Jeff, thanks a lot so much for joining me. Very interesting, very informative. Uh, stay right there. I'm going to say good night to everybody. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in tonight. Really appreciate it. Pre-virtual expo show, uh, the expo virtual preview show coming up on Wednesday. Amit Acharya will be my guest. We're going to talk about everything virtual expo and uh, many more shows to come after that. So everyone have a great rest of your weekend and we will see you all again back here on Wednesday. And again, everybody, make sure to check out the virtual expo. Come to that. And thanks, everybody. Thank you, Team Hezekiah, for the great show. Really appreciate it. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't yet. Uh, Paul, thanks for coming by tonight. Ziggy, thank you, as always, for showing up, guys. We'll see you all again shortly. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.